Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel. I'm my co-host here, Dave Popovich, and you're doing it again. Mm. You've, uh, you've <laughs> I, I'm laughing because those of you who have been tuning in for the last few weeks, there's been a bit of a, a, a battle between Popovich and I on on socks, mm-hmm. and uh, every week you kick my, you know what? <laughs> oh my God, your this socks is a pretty are good hilarious. One. If you want to get a chance to look at Pop Witch's socks and why he's the uh, sock king, uh, of, at least of this studio, um, go on to our, our, our social media platform. They're going to really post this one. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. It's well, not going to lie. Right. But you got to see the extra part. The extra part is words that we cannot say on the air. <laughs> it's covered up. But it does complete the thought. It does complete the thought. I'm wearing just plain avocado socks, <laughs> thinking I could have beat you today, not knowing that you're going to one-up me, and here we are. Mm-hmm. All right. So, <laughs> um, not going to lie. What a great line to have, not only on your socks, but not going to lie in regards to what's going to happen when it comes to what the conflict that we have. We've got a great show today. Yep. We're going to talk about the conflict and how it's going to impact from an economic perspective. Yep. We're going to talk about the conflict and rate rising interest rates in Canada and the U.S. And how, how that one little asset class called fixed income or bonds, is it a good time to invest? Is there, is there an opportunity to make money? How do, you, how do you profit and protect by using fixed income. We can talk about that as well. Exactly. And when we talk about not going to lie, we've done a lot of work uh, uh, this week and last week. Dave, you know, when we talk about this whole Ukrainian uh, and Russian issue, we've done a lot of work to talking to military officials, uh, intelligence agencies who can give us information, um, and experts from around the world. It's been a part of our due diligence for our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, we have come up with a solution or scenarios that, that could happen in this conflict. And in that, in that uh, solution and scenarios, we've kind of narrowed it down to four different outcomes. Now, Dave, I want you to take a couple of minutes of time so people can understand what's happening, um, why we're saying, not gonna lie, here are scenarios, but there could be impacts to markets, to economy to people's lives when it comes to these four different outcomes. Mm -hmm. Walk us through from the research that we have, what are those possible outcomes? Yeah, I was really, uh, I felt very fortunate uh, this week. We've done lots of uh, research, as you said, on the the various conflicts throughout history back to World War II. Yeah. Um, And we've sent some material out on that. Um, Very fortunate to spend some time on a a presentation this week, um, a private presentation with the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Uh, talking about, from a military perspective, what are the likely outcomes? We get asked that question a lot. We're not military guys. Yeah. So here's a guy that, <clears throat> that ran the entire operation in NATO, and, and he came up with four things, uh, four potential outcomes for this conflict, and, um, and then we're going to talk economically about what, sort of what that will mean. So let's give credit <clears throat> to the individual first. Let's yeah, mention so his Jim, name. Yeah, so Jim Stravitis. So yeah, Admiral Jim Stravitis. Uh, so he says that the, the first potential outcome is that Russia wins this war and takes Ukraine. Okay? We're talking the whole country, um, instills a, uh, a basically a puppet regime in Ukraine, 
uh, as he, you know, Putin has done in some other uh, countries, and, and that's, you know, that's the conflict. Um, he did not feel that, even if that were the scenario, that militarily Russia would cross a NATO border. He felt that the, uh, and he went through some statistics about, I'll uh, just give you one, the size of military spending in NATO is $900 billion a year versus $60 billion a year in Russia. And took look at manpower, look at um, strength of armament, and, and it's just, it's overwhelmingly in favor of NATO. So he made the military case that if Ukraine was, fell to Russia, it is very, very unlikely that it would go beyond that. Number two, um, <clears throat> in this particular case, the um, and we're seeing that now, we're, we're recording this on Friday, right? And I wanna say that because we would note that the Russian military is now in the process of surrounding Kyiv, the, the main city. And his second scenario was that Kyiv falls to the Russians. Um, and then the real negotiations, in his opinion, would start to take place at that point. And what those negotiations would likely lead to is Crimea and the two other eastern um, uh, areas that are Russian-influenced right now in Ukraine effectively become Russian. Now that effectively mean could a full annex of that area, yeah. okay, or it, it's just it's Russian controlled. Now there was some sort of talk as well as as the Ukraine government not going into NATO as well. Yeah, yeah, he he felt, and we've seen that development that that um, Ukraine stays outside of NATO and creates some neutrality. But that was option two. He felt that was the most likely outcome from a military perspective. Yeah. Number three uh, was that uh, effectively. Uh, it, it, it becomes a standstill. So Russia will retreat. Uh, the Crimea remains as is. The eastern part of the Ukraine remains Russian-influenced, but it's not necessarily a takeover. It is, it is, you know, Russia has not won in that particular case. And the fourth, uh, the fourth case he said was that there is a regime change, meaning that uh, um, Putin, uh, through his, uh, you know, through internal, it's the March of Ives, uh, um, he gets taken out effectively. Yeah. And he said that is highly unlikely, yeah. but not an Im impossible, not impossible scenario. Okay? Those are the four scenarios. So with those four scenarios, the high likelihood that uh, Russia will take over Kiev, they will have Ukraine uh, admit that two of the regions are independent mm -hmm. from Ukraine. Um, there is conversation that they will also have to agree that they're not going to join NATO as well. And if that's the higher likelihood outcome, um, that can cause a lot of volatility and uncertainty yep. in the market. Absolutely. And so the purpose of the outlining of these four scenarios is that they're all on the table. They all have difference of, of probability of what could be the outcome. The highest probability of, of, of those four scenarios is what is talking about taking over Kiev. And, and now it comes down to how do you handle this in your portfolio? Right. So there's going to be more volatility, more uncertainty. Expect that. But we do know that over every major conflict in history, that 9 to 12 months after a, a major component like this that we're describing, markets are higher. Yep. Higher than where they are today. Right. So think of that from a, a longer-term perspective. Short-term, expect volatility. Longer-term, expect results. Right. Right. And now comes positioning. How do you adjust your portfolio? to find the areas of opportunity, knowing the nine month, 12 month game point from when let's call Kiev being taken over. Right. Okay. 
So that's what's gonna be happening in the portfolio. That's what we're working on. We're making a lot of moves. We're looking at a lot of information on how to, how to get that opportunity on the recovery. Right. And we've seen this time and time again. Those who were investing during any conflict, you can go from 9-11, you can go to the Gulf Wars, you can go Afghanistan, whatever it may be, just look nine, 12 months after right. what happens. Right. right. So there's an opportunity. And there's a lot of investments out there or a lot of companies that have been decimated. It's shopping time. It's shopping time. And so now we go out and we start looking for the opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Um, you, you've got to stay nimble. You've got to stay dynamic. It's a dynamic situation. This thing is evolving constantly, right? And so when we're looking for those opportunities and we're looking on how to manage through this, it's not the day-to-day -day volatility that we're looking at. It, it's where this is going to end up. Where the, cut through the noise, find the real news, look at what this looks like, um, you know, short-term, a month out, six months, a year, 12, 24 months, those kinds of things. So if you need money in the next nine, 12, 24 months, it should not be in this because of a lot of volatility. Correct. If you've got money that you don't need for the next 24 months or beyond, yep. understand that there's an opportunity to make some money on this. The, the next two years, keep that capital aside. Right. Don't invest in high volatility. Keep it in low volatility or no volatility and protect yourself. That's why we have an income bucket. That's why we have a growth bucket. That's the approach. And that's what we would recommend for all of our, our clients as well. Um, Faisal, there's lots going on um, in the world, obviously. And uh, the military conflict, we've got inflation. What is going to be the outcome, right? What, what do we think when we put all this into the, into the mixer, from an economics perspective, what is likely to flow out of it? There's a lot of economists that are giving their opinions on what could transpire from world recession yep. to just a European recession to stagflation uh, to no issues in North America, but the rest of the world yep. uh, would have a problem. A whole bunch of different um, viewpoints. And so kind of let's narrow it down to what is the most likely outcome from an economic perspective, and right. that will also dictate how, how the world will react from, a, from an investment perspective as well. So we definitely need to have that, that, that viewpoint to see what's the most likely outcome economically speaking. Yeah, and nobody better to help us understand who that is than our top guy, Avery Schenfeld, CIBC's chief economist. Avery, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. We've got a lot. Uh, you heard our setup there. There's a lot to, to cover, but... Uh, maybe we just throw it to you right off the bat because we've got this wicked witch's brew sort of happening right now. And from an economics perspective, when, when you look at, uh, at this scenario, maybe you can define for us, again, from an economics perspective, what you think the likely outcome is, and then we can get into some of the specifics of, of what that means from an investment perspective. Well, I'm not obviously a military expert or a military historian. I'm not wearing a, a general's cap and a bunch of ribbons on my chest. Uh, but I think that there's two things that we can safely conclude at this point in terms of uh, the war's outcome. Uh, and and they, they are really what's going to be central for the economic impact. One is that Ukraine's economy is severely damaged and there's no quick prospect for repairing what's going to be done to that economy, uh, at least not in the next year or two. It'd be a long way back. And then the second is that, in our view, Russia has now gone so far in this conflict that there's really no prospect that uh, the free world is going to kiss and make up with Vladimir Putin. So as long as Putin is still in power, as long as there has not been regime change in Russia, Russia is a pariah state, uh, which means that 
uh, economic and uh, political relations between Russia and the NATO countries and the, the rest of the G10 and so on, uh, those are permanently damaged. And, and it's really the legacy of that that we're going to be dealing with, uh, not just the short-term recession in Russia and the collapse of the Ukraine economy, but that longer-term Cold War that I think is inevitable at this point. So with a longer term Cold War, paint us the picture of what you see economically. We can definitely stay about the, the world in, as a whole, but then let's narrow it down all the way to our home country here in Canada, what the impacts are. From your uh, analysis, if we have this Cold War, what do you see the economic impacts happening? So I think there there's two sets of impacts. One is sort of during this hot war period. Um, and then the Cold War that follows. In, in, the, in this current environment, obviously, uh, the major story is that, first of all, in 2% of the world's GDP, or roughly speaking, is made up by Ukraine and Russia, um, and those economies have fallen into deep recessions. So uh, we're going to lose a few percentage points off world economic growth just from the havoc in those two economies alone. Um, that said, you know you can see they're not that big as a share of world GDP. Russia's economy is about the size of the Texas economy. So the fact that Russia falls into recession doesn't in itself generate a huge loss in global economic activity. Uh, the main consequences for the rest of the world lie in what that's done to commodity prices. Um, and I think there's some of this that might not last beyond the war. Uh, but some that's there for the here and now, which is, you know, you've seen energy prices up materially. That's not because Russian oil and natural gas aren't flowing. They're still flowing. But the world is scrambling to buy supplies elsewhere in the fear uh, that Russian oil won't flow, which is why prices look so elevated. And that elevation in oil prices as a consequence for the rest of the world's economy certainly hurts consumer spending power in many parts of the world. And of course, elevates inflation at a time when central banks were already worried that inflation was hot. And this is just adding to that worry. And then beyond energy, of course, Russia and Ukraine collectively are major exporters of grains. Uh, in Russia's case, uh, platinum, palladium, <laughs> aluminum, uh, in in the, that block of countries, uh, you know, Belarus included, uh, you've got uh, fertilizers, for example, potash. So we have a number of other commodities whose prices are elevated. Um, that sometimes sounds like good news for Canada, but I would argue it's sort of a mixed blessing for Canada. But it's definitely negative news for other countries that are resource importers, including, of course, our most important trading partner and where a lot of us have investments, which is in the U.S. economy. So, you know, the reality was we were on the verge of raising our forecast for U.S. growth this year because the economy did get off to a better start uh, in the first quarter of the year. And instead, we've marginally lowered economic growth. Uh, under the assumption that the, the middle two quarters of the year will see a reduction in household spending power, at least as long as these gasoline prices persist. It's going to take the wind out of the sails of other parts of consumer spending. It's a really simple story. If you spend more filling up your gas tank, you have less money to spend on everything else. But it's not a recession story for the U.S. because the other story that's happening and still unfolding is the recovery from a COVID crisis. Right. People are going back to buying more services, traveling and so on. We don't think that fundamental story has changed. So, you know, growth of around three and a half percent in the U.S. and Canada this year 
we take it, as I said, a little bit of a shine off those U.S. numbers, but it's, it's not a recession story, although it is an inflation story for the time being. And then we can talk about the longer-term implications of that Cold War, I think, separately. Yeah, so when you look at what's happening with, uh, with your analysis, you're saying no recession at this point in time. We're seeing a slowdown in what we expected because it's uh, of what's going on with the war, but that's still not going to put us in a recession spot. So what happens with the two areas? One, do we still think commodity prices are set to go higher because of this conflict? And number two, if we're not going to be growing as much, do you think central bankers will no longer have to raise interest rates as many times as, as they've been uh, been promoted to do so, maybe four times in Canada, five, six, seven times in the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on those two areas? So certainly trying to predict where these commodity prices will go even next week uh, is a game I'd rather not get into because you can see just day to day we've had massive swings. And that's because, as I said, it's not that Russian oil and gas has been cut off. It's the market's varying fears from day to day about whether it will or won't be cut off. You know, the U.S. and Canada aren't going to buy Russian oil, but we never bought very much of it. And as long as they're able to sell it to somebody, whether it's China or whatever, um, that oil still represents part of global supply. So this is a sentiment-driven rally in some of these commodities uh, based on guesses on the future world of Russian exports and very tough to predict day to day. Uh, but what I don't think it really does is materially change the interest rate outlook. You know, the market initially flirted with the idea that the slowing in global growth meant that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada would have fewer interest rate hikes to do. And that sentiment has turned right around again. And I think that's right. I think that the hit to our growth is not big enough to materially alter uh, the need for those higher interest rates. But at the same time, I don't think that even though it's going to push those inflation headlines even more dramatically than we've already seen, I don't think that that really affects how many rate hikes we're going to see over the next, say, two years. And the reason for that is that ultimately the number of rate hikes you need is what does it take to slow economic growth so that we're not putting further pressure on inflation by further lowering the unemployment rate further tightening uh, the domestic economy. So the central banks will live with elevated inflation during this war period. They're not going to try to crush Canada or the U.S. economies to offset a huge spike in gasoline prices by causing prices in the rest of the economy to plummet. That would be, that would be foolish for what likely is, uh, to, at least to some extent, a temporary bump in inflation. And we still see that that at the end of the day, we've got to get short-term interest rates in the U.S. and Canada up into the sort of two and a quarter, two and a half percent range. Now, there could be some impacts on the pace that that happens, but ultimately that's the destination that we need to get to, to slow economic growth. Um, and it really isn't that impacted by this particular war. We have about a minute left to go, Avery. When you look at the, the places around the world, where are you most optimistic for economic growth and where are you the most pessimistic besides Russia, Ukraine, of course? So Europe is the one region that could be more materially affected. That's true at the corporate level. So if you're thinking stocks, remember that you know European banks, for example, probably to a greater extent than American banks and certainly more than any Canadian bank, will have credit out to Russian creditors. They may not get their money back 
German companies may, uh, you know, in addition to global oil companies that were operating in uh, in Russia and McDonald's, uh, which seems to have declared Russia a no-fry zone now, um, there are a number of other countries that will be companies, probably more European companies and German companies than North American that will have to walk away from assets in Russia and may find those assets seized by the Russians, you know, not available to come back to anytime soon. So there are some costs to the corporate world in Europe. But also Europe is at this point probably the one most affected by uh, the consumer sentiment risks because you're living on the border of a war zone. You're worried about natural gas supply being cut off. Um, You're paying a lot more for electric power because of that. Uh, All of that, a bigger dent to Europe. Again, probably not a recession story for Western Europe, but a story that might be a little bit more of a protracted path back to full employment than they were looking at before the war. Avery, we want to thank you. We've, we've run out of time. I think you've done um, an amazing justice to a complicated topic in the time we've had you. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Faisal, lots of questions about what's happening in fixed income and bonds, and that's the conservative piece of people's portfolios. But we have seen inflation expectations uh, to begin the year, and then this conflict between um, the war between Russia and Ukraine sort of exacerbate those problems. The bond markets have been pretty volatile for bond markets. And what can we expect going forward? There's there's two groups out there. One that are really concerned about what's happened in the bond market. And there's a bunch of investors out there, more individual investors are saying, just avoid bonds as a whole. Yeah. There's no need to be there. Let's go somewhere else. Cash, stocks, real estate, bonds are useless. Right. Let's address both of those concerns because the bond market, like you've said many times, the stock market can take down a company. The bond market, and we're not joking here, yeah. can take down a country. Right. We're seeing it happen day by day through this crisis. So let's get to some an expert who right. knows more about this than you and I do, who yep. can actually get into more of the details of the impacts of Ukraine, the bond market, and inflation. Let's bring him on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Brian DeCosta is joining us, founding partner and president of Algonquin Capital. Uh, first of all, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Okay, let's talk a little bit about really interested to, to get your um, impression around the uncertainties that have been created by this Russian uh, war in the Ukraine and its impacts on inflation and your expectation around interest rates, and we'll get to the Bank of Canada in a minute, but just give us that sort of that framework of what you're thinking about right now. So I think the, the you know, there's gonna be a short run and a long run impact from the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So the immediate impact is what we're seeing today, which is a high degree of uncertainty, largely driven by the sanctions, So we're going to have intended and unintended consequences of sanctions. And one of the consequences we can see is the price of oil, which is driving up inflation, you know, near term inflation and also actually going to be the price of food, given how much uh, agriculture product comes out of the Ukraine and Russia. So in the near term, we we already feeling the pain at the pump and we're feeling it at the grocery store and there's going to be no relief. But I think the bigger picture is actually more important. Um, which is um, before, uh, especially once the wall fell, we had a peace dividend which allowed companies to put supply chains around the world searching out the lowest cost. Now what I think is re-emerged as a factor is national security. And so that's going to affect industries like energy, transportation, um, 
Think of technology, telecommunications, pharmaceuticals, food. And what that means is you're no longer, lowest cost is no longer going to be the winner. So I expect to see onshoring of production back into the Western world where, you know, costs will be higher. The other implication from this is if you're a company that relies solely on production from a country that has an authoritarian regime, you're going to rethink that because you're going to see how fast you could be out of business if that regime decides to um, in, launch an invasion of sorts. And, and think of Taiwan, uh, Taiwan and China. And so again, you're going to see some of those companies diversify that supply chain. So what does that mean? We, in, you know, before the pandemic, inflation was 1.8% in, in Canada for about 10 years. Now I think what worries me now is I'm putting a non-trivial chance, so for me that's around 30%, that inflation is actually going to run much hotter. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see inflation of 3%. And in that world, that means interest rates are going to be 3, 4, 5%. So with those in line, the Bank of Canada is at a headline, at a spot right now with all the conflict. Um, the the numbers on price of food, the inflation or the cost increase on oil and gasoline, many are saying this is temporary. And and Brian, when, when we start to see that this being temporary, why in the heck would the Bank of Canada need to raise interest rates to cool it down if this is a temporary issue? Is there other parts of the economy that needs rising interest rates? And then... How do you actually price that out to see if there's opportunity to make money in the bond market with, with rising interest rates? Right. So, so let me first start with the, the Bank of Canada. So the bank has one mandate, and that's to foster the conditions to keep inflation in a band of 1% to 3%. And the reason for that is because they believe that if, you, if, you, if they can provide an environment of low and stable inflation, it's easy for businesses and people to make decisions on borrowing right because they expect you know they have an expectation of interest rates and that allows good economic growth which provides the most be the benefit most benefit for the most people even before the invasion of russia or the russian invasion of ukraine we had inflation of 5.1% today we saw the or on friday we saw the unemployment uh, numbers in canada and we see an unemployment rate of 5.5% so basically even without the invasion, you had the, it, 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 the emergency rate setting of, you know, now it's 0.5%, is just simply not warranted. In fact, if, if, you, can make the, if you can make the argument, before the pandemic, the, the rate was 1.75%, that's probably a more reasonable level to be at. And so the bank had already started raising rates, and I think they will continue to do so. Um, they know it's not going to affect the price of gasoline or food, but at the same time, what they're trying to do is to say, well, we have to make sure that we write, redirect some consumption dollars away from goods and services, which would be the real concern in terms of price pressures spreading and inflation becoming embedded in the psychology of Canadians. Um, so on that basis, I expect them to keep raising rates into the summer. You know, I think once the rate is one or one and a quarter percent, they're probably going to pause because by then the intended and unintended consequences of the sanctions will be much more evident. Um, and also they have to assess the impact on higher interest rates on, on highly indebted Canadians. 
So it's they are going to be prudent, but at the, you know the, 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 this is why that they are raising rates is because at the end of the day, their concern is largely driven by that um, inflation and, and the risk that it becomes embedded in psychology. How do you make money in these types yep. of markets when interest rates are rising? Because the, the conversation of some investors, primarily retail, is stay the heck away from bonds. You're not going to make money in a rising interest rate market. Go somewhere else. Right. And, you know, and I think further to that, it's been pretty disappointing uh, returns in fixed income over the last decade as well. Um, you know, I think between either GICs or bond markets, you're, you know, investors are earning like 2%, which once you factor in taxes and inflation, is you, you can make the arguments dead money. And I think that's why a lot of investors have just said, you know, don't bother with bonds. Um, so again, I'm going to give you the good news, the, the, the short run and the, the long run story. The next 12 months is a headwind for bond markets, in particular for long maturity bonds which are very sensitive to rising interest rates. However, I think there's a bit of good news here. Um, interest rates are going higher. So if you're invested in shorter maturity bonds, you're going to have those bonds maturing back at par. You're going to have coupons received. So you're going to be reinvesting at higher rates. And so what I think the, the, the and, and, and I think in, in, in my, I think we're going to be in a world of, 3% type of interest rates, maybe 4%, then fixed income starts to become a much more attractive asset class. And that's for that reason, in our funds, we're keeping our maturity profile quite low because we know that you know there's a headwind that we're facing today. But when I look out 12 months from now, I see a much better horizon for fixed income um, and where it can fit into people's portfolios much more comfortably. What do you tell a What do you tell an investor today, Brian, that says bonds have no place, or do do bonds still have a place in the portfolio today, given what you've just said? I think they do. Um, you know, bonds at the end of the day are your high quality assets. Um, you know, if, if for example, if you look at the corporate bond market in Canada, and I and I could give you a number of examples, but let's pick Suncor because I think many of the client base out there would understand that name. So you can, uh, you know, we 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 know that the uh, Western Canada or Canada as a whole stands to benefit from sanctions on Russian oil in that there's uh, going to be a demand for Canadian oil is going to remain robust, and we and, and we can see that in oil prices. Um, so a company like Suncor, which has been focused on reducing debt, um, you've seen a bounce in the stock price. But you could invest in Suncor bonds now where the yield is almost 4%. There's almost no, you know, there's a very low risk that Suncor is not going to pay that interest payment, not going to pay you back. In fact, they're paying down debt. So those bonds are becoming much more valuable. And you know, if you're at all worried around the, the the risk of some really big stock market correction, at least your capital in a bond is not as, as exposed as much. So I think bonds still play a role. They're kind of the ballast in a portfolio. They'll provide a little bit of income um, because you know, as we know, 
it's fun to be 100% in equities when they're going up, <laughs> but I'm sure if you were 100% in equities in March of 2020, you probably had a number of sleepless nights. And, and that's what bonds do. They allow you to have a better night's sleep at the end of the day. Brian, thank you very much for your input today on fixed income, Bank of Canada profile, what we can expect over the next 12 to call it 24 months. We appreciate your time today. Great. No, thank you, everyone, and uh, everyone have a great day. We've we, Some interesting conversation this week, and um, this is a topic that maybe we should have covered a, a while ago, right? <laughs> people, people have done a very good job. We talked to lots of people. They've done what they're supposed to do over the years. They've invested in RSPs. Now we get to this period we call retirement, or you hit, you know, 70, 71, 72, and you've you got to start taking money out. And guess what? Come, here comes the tax bill. Did I make the right decision yeah. by investing in RSPs through my whole life? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a very good question that most people that are drawing from their RSPs and they get that tax bill are saying, damn, I shouldn't have done this. Right. I should have kept my money outside. Right. Now, let's go really quickly over the math. There's a good large percentage of Canadians that have a lower income tax rate in retirement than when they were working. So you put your money in RSPs, you get a deduction, you get your tax refund for most people, and you got that refund at a higher tax rate. Right. And then when you pay tax on that income on your RSPs, you're paying at a lower rate. So it does work for majority of Canadians. But hang on, slow down. So when you're working, let's say you're paying at a 30% tax rate. Yep. Okay. You invest the money, you get a 30% tax credit, okay? A reduction in your taxable income, you get 30 cents back on the dollar, and then at some point in the future, I have to take it out, and I'm taxed at, say, 20%. The Correct. difference, that 10%, is an advantage to you, and that's what you're talking about for Correct. the vast majority. Plus the tax-free or tax-deferred uh, growth we'll get to that. over time. So, yeah. that, so that's the general. Now there is a percentage of Canadians right. who end up paying the same or more tax as they go through retirement. Right. And then there is the ultimate tax at the end where there are a large percentage of Canadians who end up paying 48% or higher in taxes upon their death. How can that happen? When you pass away, your RSPs or RIF, depending on what you have, retirement income fund, is deemed disposed of at that time. And if you don't have a surviving spouse, that money is considered income in the year of death. Right. Welcome to the highest tax bracket in your, in your home province. Right. In Alberta, it's 48%. Depending on where you live, it could be higher. Now comes the problem. Right. And what I hear from the tax professionals that we've, we've talked to uh, for, on behalf of our clients or with our clients, they are just recommending, just start drawing down. Just pay it. Just pay the tax. Maybe higher or whatever, just pay it. And I... And I, I it bothers me when I just hear that line from many professionals. Because it's true, you have to pay it, but there are ways that you can minimize or reduce your taxes. We've called that terminology 3D. Mm -hmm. And we look for ways to deduct, mm -hmm. divide, defer. Yep. Now, we say it quite quickly as if it's just a regular process, but it's a lot of work to figure out how to drop someone's tax rate or take money out of your RSPs tax-free. Hey, there's an idea. Mm -hmm. There's an idea. Or how do you actually have that lower tax rate in your retirement when you're, when you're paying higher income tax while you're working? All these different ways need to have analysis. There is no software right. that tells you the different ways to handle this. And I'm saying from our tax uh, professional we talked to, there is no software out there. 
There's no financial planning software that will give you the different scenarios of how to reduce taxes. They just don't have it. There's no robo-advisor that does that. Right. It just doesn't happen. Right. So what's, guess what, what you need? You need proper advice and a team. And a team to sit down and work through the strategy. Right. And this really irks a lot of Canadians. I cannot believe I'm paying more tax when I'm taking my money out. I cannot believe I'm paying the same amount of tax that, I'm, that I was when I was working. I could have left this in my non-registered. I could have used TFSAs instead. And they're right. Well, and, and then it gets compounded, Faisal, if there's an OAS clawback. If oh, that income creates an OAS clawback. God forbid that right. you, you actually have some income now right. because you're forced to take the money right. out and then the old age security clawback comes into play. That's an additional 15%. I call it a tax. The government calls it a clawback. Right. There we go. Right. So it's just, it's frustrating that it, wherever you go, the government has their hands in your pocket. Right. So how do you remove that hand as much as possible, pay as little to Ottawa as you can, yes. requires an ongoing strategy. So right. if you are uh, frustrated by the amount of taxes you're paying, get the advice. Right. Get the right team to work with to sit down and go through your strategies, go through your portfolio, go through all the options, and see what's right for you and your family. Because right. there's so many different ways to achieve the goals you're trying to achieve. Right. And it's a, it is about education, isn't it? And I, I mean, I think that's what this whole show was built around. It's about, uh, it's about educating people about their options. Just understand what the good, the bad, and the ugly about the things, the opportunities that you have in front of you, right? What can you do? And to your point, the reason that you can't standardize this, and we've talked, we've had shows about the rules of thumb, mm -hmm. right? Is there is no rule of thumb. It depends on all of the things you've acquired throughout your life, the composition of your assets, yep. right? All of these things play a role in determining your unique solution. Now, when you're looking for a solution, you also <coughs> want to look for a solution on how to bulletproof your retirement. Yep. All these different issues come up, tax, conflict, war, volatility in the market, and I still want to have my lifestyle, Dave. How do I do it? How do I have that proper strategy or solution to that problem? We're going to discuss that at our upcoming seminar on Tuesday, March 29th, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. And, and Faisal, just to, for a second, build on what you just said. The reason we called this show More Than Money is because it's not just about the investments. It's not just about the economics. It's not just about the tax. And I don't mean to diminish the importance of every one of those elements in, as part of the overall plan, but it is about the, the lifestyle, the uh, health, uh, um, the bucket as we call it, what you're going to experience as you age, transitioning that money to the next generation. All of those things are important and we'll discuss those elements. So thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on CHQR 770. Uh, for, on behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, we look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.